Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I sit down with Dr. Lorenzo Cohn and Allison Jeffries. Dr. Cohn is the Richard E. Haynes Distinguished Professor in Clinical Cancer Prevention and Director of the Integrative Medicine Program at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. He is the former Vice Chair of the Academic Consortium for Integrative Medicine and Health and is a founding member and past president of the Society for Integrative Oncology. Dr. Cohn has published more than 185 scientific articles in top medical journals and has edited two books on integrative medicine for cancer care. Allison Jeffries has worked extensively as an educator in museums, classrooms, and now helping individuals, families, and communities learn about anti-cancer living. She has a master's in educational psychology and is finishing a wellness coaching certification. She helps people find strategies that work for them and makes the often daunting task of finding a path forward, visible and doable, in the area of lifestyle change. Cohn and Jeffries live in Houston with their three children. They are the authors of the book, Anti-Cancer Living, Transform Your Life and Health with the Mix of Six. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Dr. Cohn and Allison, but before I do, just a couple things to mention. First, a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com. And second, I want to take a moment to thank the Carl Felt Center who makes the show possible. Hi, Dr. Lorenzo and Allison. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I am so happy to have you both on. Thank you so much for inviting us. We're thrilled to be here. Thank you. Yeah, and first, I would just love to know a little bit about about your backgrounds and just what led you to work with cancer recovery and prevention. So... My background is actually as a, a medical psychologist. Another term for that is, is health psychologist. So I have a, a PhD with an emphasis that focuses on really this field of psychoneuroimmunology. That's kind of a mouthful, but it's really understanding how psychological processes can influence biology, behavior, and then ultimately health outcomes for uh, probably now close to 30 years of focus specifically in the area of oncology because cancer, of course, is influenced by the immune system. And since arriving at MD Anderson over 25 years ago, have really focused in the area initially of, of stress, stress biology, harms of stress. And then the flip side is, well, how do we help patients? And of course, it goes beyond stress and founded in uh, 1998 and then more formally in 2002, MD Anderson's Integrative Medicine Program that looks at the whole patient and super importantly, how to improve treatment response and then extending into long-term recovery, symptom control, et cetera. And I'm an educator by training uh, with a master's in educational psychology. And I entered the cancer space really together with Lorenzo, uh, learning about, you know, the kind of research he was doing and others were doing at MD Anderson, and then bringing that into our home. And, 
you know, focusing on our kids, realizing we weren't focusing on ourselves as well, sort of backtracking, changing the way that we were living. Uh, and then we started speaking to different groups within our community and further afield and realized that we kind of had a unique perspective uh, to share. And and what became clear early on, you know, I'm embedded in this cancer world, so I know the link between behavior and cancer is 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 irrefutable, and that we could prevent the majority of cancers, improve survivorship for the majority of cancers. But most people in the community don't know that. They think that cancer is a disease of uh, of genes. That's something you inherit, and it's predestined. Um, and if you don't have that that sort of family. Uh, connection to cancer, then, you know, as long as you don't smoke, then you're probably going to be okay. Uh, and, and of course, that's the furthest thing uh, from the truth. And that's when, you know, we teamed up to, to create the book we wrote, Anti-Cancer Living, which brings the evidence, but as well, uh, very importantly, a prescription for people to follow. Yeah. And I was going to ask you about that because there's so many books on cancer. And I just wanted to hear what do you think makes your book different? Well, I think that, you know, often you are talking about one area, potentially, you know, like exercise, diet, or stress and cancer. Uh, also, books tend to give you a lot of information about the science and can't, you know, let's say stress and cancer, but they don't give you a prescription of how to approach it. And our prescription is not the prescription. It's a way to, you know, let you think about ways that you could engage in stress management. It's a jumping off spot. And so we really wanted to give people the knowledge about what cancer says, for instance, in relation to stress. And then what are some strategies that you could actually do as an individual, in a family, and in a community as, uh, at large? I think an additional differentiator is, is the level of evidence. So this uh, became a somewhat heated moment with our <laughs> editor when our references spanned 70 pages, 71 to be precise. And she said, well, can it just be available online? And we're like, no, you know, that's what makes this book so uh, unique is that people can see the evidence. And we try and describe the evidence very much in lay terms. And instead of not having the little notes, which for some is distracting, the notes are there. Uh, so it's written in a very lay but also scientific way. It was very important to us that not only would the patients be able to understand this, but it was written at a level so that a physician felt comfortable that the evidence was good. And there's nothing in here and nothing that we recommend for which we're uncertain about that recommendation, which is the case in, in a lot of books out there. And then probably most importantly, as Allison said, but it begs uh, repeating, you know, we have six areas and no other book really focuses on six areas. And these six areas are, are critical and build on each other. And, and without one of them, uh, the rest kind of, it kind of falls apart. Uh, we're trying to research that scientifically, but it's very hard to look at uh, decomposing a, a six-piece model. But as we go through them, it, your audience will see it, it kind of makes sense that we need all six of these. Yeah. And I think what you said is so important that the average person can understand and apply these things, but also you could show your doctor and they will understand it as well. So that's that's key. Can you talk a little bit about your diagnosis with melanoma and how your research helped you and your healing? So uh, probably not a coincidence that literally on the day that we signed off on the last proofs of the book uh, was the day that I had my biopsy that came back as an advanced melanoma. I didn't actually know that day that it was advanced melanoma. We didn't know what it was. And that was somewhat horrifying for about five days and, and you know, not knowing whether it was, you know, stage four lung cancer. So the response I had in some sense at that time, which may be 
bit strange for for some of the listeners to hear is is almost a sense of relief uh and and I've written an op-ed about this because what I felt at that moment was that okay now I can prioritize myself now I can double down on my stress management which was kind of my weak link um you know I don't believe that stress causes cancer I know down to the cellular level the harms of stress and it's profound uh but as, as a causative factor um it's primarily hard to do that kind of research but we know that chronic stress wreaks havoc on all our biological processes makes our body more hospitable to cancer growth and those two years in writing this book uh were were probably some of the more stressful uh experiences for both of us a very positive experience <laughs> in the long run but but it's hard it's hard to to write this kind of book and to make all the different parties uh happy with with what we produced um and so what it uh highlighted to me is that it's time to start to manage my stress I did some tweaking to my diet that we can talk about when we get into that section uh that may not have been the exact things I should have been doing eating too much probiotic based foods uh and I did a little experiment to to see that that probably wasn't the best approach and we have new evidence that we published in science showing the appropriate approach that we can talk about uh but it allowed me to prioritize my health and well-being and as i always said at the end of our talks you know we we shouldn't have to have a cancer diagnosis to start to live our truest and fullest life and engage in the mix of six but that's often the case for many so true i mean i had ovarian cancer uh 24 years ago in 1998 and i just began to just take a hard look at my life and and knew that I had to make so many changes and stress was a big one. I was not managing it well at all. So yeah, I can see that. Um, so Allison, I wanted to ask you about being a caregiver because often the caregiver is given a back seat at, because everyone's so worried about the person going through cancer. So I wanted to hear, you know, is there any advice for people for caregivers, you know, what can you do to, to one, support your person, the person you're taking care of the most, and, and how can you support yourself? It's a really good question because it, you know, cancer is a, a disease of the family, right? It affects everybody. It's not just the person with the diagnosis. And so it's as important for the caregiver as it is for the patient to have their support teams. And we talk a lot about um, love and support being the foundation for being able to take on anything else, any other kind of change you want, and just being able to cope with life, whatever, however that comes to you. And so in my own personal situation, it was really important that I had my own group of friends, you know, that provided me support. Lorenzo had people who are reaching out to him all of the time. You know, I often talk about after having gone through this experience, I realized in saying to other people, you know, call me anytime I'm here for you was not effective. And that really what you have to say is, I have three hours tomorrow and I want to dedicate it to you. And I want you to give me jobs that will last for three hours to help you. And, you, you know, being able as a friend, being able to say that to another, let's say, caregiver is a tremendous treat, whether that's come and sit with the person who's got a cancer diagnosis, do your laundry, clean up your house, pick up your kids, uh, you know, whatever it is that the person needs. Um, you know, I learned those kinds of things, how important that is. But essentially, you know, you have to have your own system. And I think that, you know, sometimes depending on the cancer situation, you have to dedicate, you know, almost all of your time to caring for that individual. So it's really important that you carve out one thing that you're going to do, do for yourself always, you know, so whether that's exercise for me, exercise was the thing that I knew was was very important and sleep. 
And so those were the things that I really made sure I did. And then I had the support from my team. I love that because it's not so overwhelming, you know, just to say, pick one or two things a day that you could do for yourself. And also what you said about telling your friend, you know, exactly what what they can do. That is so helpful because you're right. So many people say, oh, I'm here for you. What can I do? And the person's not going to tell you. Yeah. And, and they, and they are don't there. Know. They don't know though. I mean, they, yeah. they, they're, it's well-intentioned, but they don't, yeah. they don't know how to help. So it, it's hard to ask for help. And, you know, Allison had to get over that, get over, yeah. you know, I don't want to bother somebody. And in fact, the research is pretty clear. You'll, you'll see my refrain. I always go to the research that, that supporting others, that volunteering your time is salubrious. It has, health benefits all the way down to gene expression. So you are giving your friends a gift by allowing them to volunteer your time to help you and and that family. Mm -hmm. I love that. And so now I, I would love you to go over the mix of six. I know, you know, there's a lot involved, but just if you can kind of go over it briefly and, and give some examples, that would be so helpful. So the mix of six, uh, the six areas are love and support, stress, sleep, exercise, diet, and exposure to environmental toxins. And importantly, there's a synergistic effect, which we can talk about sort of after we go through quickly. Um, but the most important um pillar, let's say, is love and support, because we, you know, so often you decide I want to make a change in, let's say, diet. And, you know, the next day at work, they've got the cakes on the counter or, you know, it's somebody's birthday and you're going out for dinner. And so you feel sabotaged. So it's really important that, you know, you've got this support system in place so that when you make that first step, whatever decision that is, like today I'm going to cook a new recipe or I'm going to do X or Y, that you have the support behind you. So you have your team who helps you and knows that you're doing this, making this change and is there to make sure that that first step is successful. So that's love and support. I don't know, stress. Well, stress, uh, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, literally can harm every single biological and, and physiological process in the body, literally making the tumor microenvironment, which is the initial cluster of, of mutated cells growing inappropriately, uh, more hospitable to cancer growth. In uh, this data is, is, really irrefutable uh, and has been documented over and over. So not only does it make our bodies more vulnerable to cancer growth and the systems that are there aren't able to function properly, uh, but it also sabotages our healthy intentions and behaviors. When you are chronically stressed, you're going to tend to forego your exercise, your sleep is disrupted, obviously your relationships become frayed and frazzled. Um, you will not choose healthy meals, skip exercise, et cetera. So um, in addition to that, if that wasn't enough, um, it, there's evidence to actually show that stress will counteract the beneficial effects of eating a healthy meal. So so many people prioritize diet and we are bombarded with information about diet, but rarely does somebody focus on stress. And the evidence is clear that, you know, if you, if you're chronically stressed and you eat a healthy meal, the beneficial effects from that will be diminished uh, if you're not managing your stress well. So, you know, you, you should do both. And that's what the concept of synergy is all about. And in thinking about strategies that you want to take on, you know, this is the kind of thing where you reach out to a friend and you say, I've never done meditation. I'd really like to learn, you know, what's this about? You know, would you be interested in signing up for a class? Or would you, you know, would you, can we do a meditation together online? We'll put, you know, pull something off of the internet and we'll commit to 10 minutes a day. So it's, it's, it's one of those things that you actually have to reserve the time for or you can't multitask through it, like exercise or eating. Uh, and 
it can change the way that you view each day. And it's the kind of thing you can do with a family. We started doing it when our kids were really young and we would do it before school for two minutes or up to 10 minutes. The kids picked the meditation and, you know, it was a way to fill their toolbox and to help us also uh, develop a practice. Yeah. And I love that because you're holding each other accountable. And I think that helps so much when you're trying to change a habit. Yeah. Particularly this one, because it's not it's not reinforced by our society. Food now is is a big deal and exercise. You know, everyone knows we're supposed to exercise and you look at your colleagues who exercise and you think, you know, wow, I wish I could be that dedicated. Uh, but we we don't talk about relaxation, meditation, mind body uh, practices. And in fact, we often in the professional world view that as a waste of time. Why, why are you just sitting there? Why can't you exercise and eat a healthy meal while you're working, right? I mean, that that's like the ideal. Uh, you, you don't waste any time and you're doing all these healthy things, but uh, it's probably not as healthy as, as doing one at a time, of course. But um, the key is that you you have to engage this process and it doesn't take as much as we think uh to be able to put yourself into a relaxed state and the more that your body shifts into this more relaxed state the easier it is to get to that relaxed state at a moment's notice and to be able to fill yourself with some calm decrease the stress hormones etc now, do people, like, can you do it in 10 minutes? Because people say, oh, I just don't have time. I'm so busy. Is 10 minutes beneficial? 10 minutes is definitely beneficial. And, and you know, there's evidence that 10 minutes will have an impact on gene expression. Um, and, you know, gene expression, not to get too scientific, but that's what controls all the biological processes. So you see a decrease in the genes that are controlling um, inflammation, which, you know, we want to have decreased uh, to have a healthy body, uh, decreased risk for multiple diseases. In 10 minutes, that can happen. How long will it last? You know, is, is questionable if you then go back into a fight or flight response right away. Uh, but the longer you can kind of extend the tail of that state of calm, uh, why one starts with diaphragmatic breathing in particular, and I was just editing a document on this for, for our patient education group, is that the vagus nerve, which goes through the whole uh, diaphragm is innervated at the through the whole body and is innervated at the bottom of the diaphragm. As you extend your belly down with the deep diaphragmatic breath, you're stimulating the vagal nerve. And as you stimulate the vagal nerve, you have an increase in parasympathetic tone, which is the relaxation response, which shuts down sympathetic nervous system activity, meaning you're shutting down the fight or flight response. You can do that just with diaphragmatic breathing, even forgetting about, so to speak, what's going on with your thoughts. Just get those deep belly breaths going, and all of a sudden your body naturally goes into a state of relaxation. Now, you know, 10 minutes multiple times a day is, of course, better than just 10 minutes once a day. It's interesting also when you, even when you do a one minute, you know, meditation moment, you know, where you really focus on, you know, let's say, washing your hands or just following your breath, you realize at the end of that how much stress you're carrying that you don't know about. Right. It's not until you stop and just follow your breath with your eyes closed, your hands in your lap, and then you come out of that and you realize, wow, I was carrying a lot today. And so it's looking for that feeling so that you have more of that. So when we talk about this in our book, and as Allison said, the meditation moments, setting up times, the things that you're doing throughout your day already, like washing your hands for physicians, that moment before they go in the room with the patient when they pump the yes. sanitizing alcohol on their hands, just take three or four deep diaphragmatic breaths empty your mind and just focus on that, washing your hands, brushing your teeth. There's so many activities we do throughout our day where you need to take a break from whatever you're doing for a minute or two and, and 
add a meditation moment in those times. So smart, because I'm thinking about when you go for a test, a scan, and, and you're just so nervous about it. So even doing something like that right before, I mean, just even if you're in the room and you're just touching your hands and, and you know, taking big breaths, being mindful, I, I would assume that helps a lot. Oh, well, we, we, we call it scanxiety, yes. uh, which is, you know, something that is is very real, not only the fear of, of what the information could be, but the, the stress of being back in the medical center, getting into the machines. Uh, that is the ideal time to start to engage in some type of mind-body practice. You know, it, it is, it is a, a hand away uh, to be able to, to access so many different ways of, of relaxing yourself in those moments of stress. You know, with earphones and a re- recording, you know, that you've pulled on your phone, you can be, you know, completely away from your situation and take time to just really focus on a guided meditation. It's very effective. Yeah, it's a great idea. The tumor is only a symptom of cancer, not the cause. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Carlfeld. I'm the owner of the Carlfeld Center in Meridian, Idaho. We specialize in cutting-edge integrative oncology care, addressing the cause and not just the symptom of cancer. There are 11 factors you need to address when diagnosed with cancer. To learn more of what they are, get my free ebook when you visit thecarfoldcenter.com. Along with the ebook, I will email you a free webinar series where world-renowned specialists will tell you what you need to do to address these 11 factors. You'll hear from experts like Jane McLellan, Dr. Paul Anderson, Dr. Neil McKinney, Dr. William Lee, Dr. Nasha Winters, and Dr. Isaac Elias. Don't miss out on this life-saving information. I also offer a free 15-minute cancer consult where we can go over where you are at in your cancer journey and how the cutting-edge therapies we offer can benefit you. Give the Carful Center call at 208-338-8902 or visit our website at thecarfulcenter.com. So what is next? Is it sleep or something else? Sleep. Yes. Sleep. You know, Lorenzo was talking about stress, you know, sabotaging every area, but sleep really sabotages every area. And it's building contagion, you know, that positive contagion throughout the mix of six. And sleep is, is you know, it's all about routine establishing routine that is realistic for you and that you can live with and using your senses. Most of us do not have a diagnosable sleep disorder. You know, if you're having some kind of sleep disturbance, let's say three days a week for three months, then you would want to go and see a physician about, you know, a sleep issue. But most of us are probably just poor at our what's called sleep hygiene which is looking at the way in which we set up to go to bed, you know, drinking too much coffee, having too much alcohol, all of these things kind of get in the way. And so we just use our senses to evaluate, you know, what you're doing. So, you know, taste, for instance, is things like alcohol and coffee. And the coffee actually stays in your system a lot longer than we think of. Uh, We think we just have it in the morning and then it's kind of gone by afternoon, but actually coffee has, uh, you know, a long life. And so it can be in your system for 24 to 36 hours. So if you're very sensitive to it, you want to really pay attention. So we go through the senses and we just look at, you know, light, you know, what you see. So if you're in bed and it's very light in your room where you have the, you know, the electronics with the, you know, that light that beams at you if you wake up in the middle of the night and you see it. So it's really about just looking at the way in which you're approaching your sleep and improving your hygiene. I recently got those blue light glasses and I don't know if it's the placebo effect, but I'm telling you it's, it seems to work. I, I put it on like a couple hours before bed and I get tired and I'm, I'm ready to go. Well, so the evidence isn't isn't clear, but the theory is that the lights that we're getting off of computers, televisions, phones, you know, all of our 
devices um, are, are, is, is stimulating the occipital lobe and it is not allowing the pineal gland to release melatonin, which is the relaxation and sleepy hormone uh, that we need to be able to initiate as well as to maintain sleep. So people are stuck with their devices right up until bedtime and they're still very stimulated, so to speak. And so that's the theory behind these blue light glasses to be able to block out uh, that light. And and the similar thing that Allison was talking about is that this ambient light that exists unless you uh, have blackout curtains and you don't have anything plugged in that has a light in your room, uh, that even even if you uh, just briefly wake up in the night and open your eyes and that light shines into your cornea, it's going to start to shut down the release of melatonin. And so that's why, you know, the the light is so important. Sound is so important. Mm-hmm. Temperature of your room is is critical. Being able to, to keep the temperature low because our body wants to drop uh, temperature to be able to conserve energy for the hard work that's going on in our brain during sleep. And what do you think about if you are tossing and turning, you know, to get up in in a very, you know, dark room, just go somewhere else and, and and just stay up for a little bit and then go back to sleep? Because I know people have so much trouble falling, you know, they'll fall asleep, but then they'll get up at like three in the morning and they can't fall back asleep. So part of sleep hygiene is that the bed is for sleeping. Um, again, this is, and, and of course, for, for lovemaking. But outside of that, if you do have a sleep issue, you shouldn't be watching television in bed. You shouldn't be reading in bed. So as you suggest, getting out of bed, if you're beyond, you know, the 10 or 15 or whatever, you're, you're comfortable realizing that it's not going to work. You don't want to toss and turn from three until seven. But that's also a place where you can put in that breathing. So you can use that meditation, you know, focusing on your breath and trying to build a practice. If that's an issue for you, that you're waking up and having trouble getting back to sleep, you develop, you know, a five to 10 minute practice of following your breath. And that can actually help you get back to sleep. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm I'm working with a lot of people that are having trouble with that. So it's very, very helpful. Just to mention the synergy component, because it begs reinforcing. It's not only about behaviors, where if you're sleep deprived, you're not gonna be able to engage in your behaviors as well. It's about our biology. Again, if we go back to the example of food, you process your food ineffectively and you actually will be shifting more of the energy that you consume to fat if you are sleep deprived and so in some sense we've inherited evolutionarily speaking this condition uh that when our body is stressed and being sleep deprived is one aspect of stress historically people would have been sleep deprived because they were out there doing more hunting and gathering. Why are you hunting and gathering in the middle of the night and losing sleep? It's because perhaps there's a famine coming. So the body actually packs on the fat uh, and there's a clear link between people who have restricted amount of sleep and uh, obesity, overweight, and actually inability to lose weight. So, so many people, again, restrict calories, they exercise, they don't look at their sleep and they're wondering, well, why am I not losing weight? And so it's it's just a critical, important area as well. That's such a good point. Okay, so the next mix of six, what is that? Exercise. Well, I mean, exercise is just, yeah, I mean, it's, it's related to it's everything. Just, well, and it's just so like every doctor needs to have an exercise prescription pad. Everybody needs to stand more, sit less move more. It it is not that complicated. People try and make it complicated. How much should I do and how much resistance? And should I do, you know, aerobic? And should I do the extreme, the non-extreme? Just start moving more. Uh, Just start walking. And this is something, uh, you know, ideally in a mindful world, you don't multitask. But this is one of the places where you can multitask. You can be on the phone, you know, don't be on your phone typing email while you're walking. Uh, But there's lots of ways to safely exercise 
and do other things. So it just becomes part of your day. And this is a great place to gather your team, you know, for support. So you have a friend or a colleague who's interested in exercising after work or before work or a friend who wants to meet to walk. Or if you're a, a patient who's getting care, you know, after you get treatment, really important to try and be able to walk actually helps you recover instead of laying on the couch, uh, which is what you feel like doing. And the research, you know, supports that. So it's exercise is critical and can be incorporated in so many different ways. And it's something that you can do as a family. Often we talk about, you know, that so often rewards are food, but rewards can actually be activity. So in scheduling things to meet with people, meet at a park and walk, take a bike ride, uh, you know, pick up your friend who's getting treatment and take them to a place where you can just slowly walk around. There are many different ways to be active. And start to do this with, with families and, and friends. Again, we we always gather for meals and gathering for meals is important, breaking bread together, but gather for exercise. Meet in the park to kick around a soccer ball or to throw a Frisbee or to just do goofy games together. You know, you, you don't need to be an athlete to be able to, to exercise and increase your heart rate. And when it comes to cancer, prevention, as well as for those uh, with active disease, uh, the the evidence is probably the most overwhelming out of all areas of the mix of six. And it's partly because it's easy to quantify. Diet is super complex, as we'll get into. Um, and, and there's just been so much research on exercise. So people who exercise more have a lower risk of cancer. Once they're diagnosed, they have better prognosis, long-term survival, and very importantly, as Allison alluded to, better quality of life. So exercise can counteract a lot of the symptoms that come from some of the cancer treatments, fatigue being the primary one. And, and it seems counterintuitive, uh, but I personally felt this myself one day uh, after immunotherapy, just having this overwhelming fatigue walking up the driveway and it literally felt like my my feet were in cement blocks just taking one step after another uh was excruciating just taking the 20 steps to get to the back door and i thought wow this is cancer related fatigue and i'd never i've been studying it we do yoga interventions exercise interventions to help uh people with cancer overcome it but it never personally felt it. And I said, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm not supposed to go to the couch. I'm supposed to walk around the block. So I got my motivator, which is our little dog, Rosie, uh, put her leash on and just, you know, put one step after another, having her pull me to, to keep me motivated. And around halfway around the block, I started to to feel my energy coming back. It didn't recover immediately, but I, I, I it helps to break that cycle. And so uh, I, I know it's hard, but you need to just try and just to do a little bit with increments. And then after a while, you'll see uh, that, that you kind of are breaking this, this pattern that exists. Yeah. I'm so glad you're saying this because so many people say, I'm just too tired to get out of bed. I can't move. And as you said, if you just sort of force yourself to do it a little bit, you end up feeling better. And mechanistically, we know that there's, there's many reasons for cancer-related fatigue, but one of the biological responses leading to fatigue is increased uh, inflammation. So, you know, we, we can tackle it with exercise because exercising decreases inflammation. But lack of sleep increases inflammation, chronic stress increases inflammation, dietary factors can increase inflammation. So, so again, all of the mix of six will actually help combat cancer-related fatigue and other symptoms you may be experiencing. And so next is diet, right? Yeah. That's the complicated one. So that's why it's at the bottom. <laughs> you know, what you want to do is you want to build a body that's inhospitable to cancer. And through all of these, you know, the mix of six, you're do, you're do, taking small steps towards that. With diet, uh, you know, viewing 
but you I'm sure have heard of food as medicine. And so it's really looking at what are you going to put into your body that is going to allow your body to focus on your treatment or focus on improving health, focus on healing. And so you have choices about, you know, what you choose. And we talk about filling half of your plate with vegetables to start. So at every meal, half of your plate is vegetables. And that's not just a kind of salad. It's a maybe three different vegetables. And we talk a lot about how to prepare those. And this is where you could ask a friend to do this for you. If you're in treatment and feeling tired, you want to, uh, you know, I always think about preparing things. I'll do one hard thing and two easy. And I'm going to make enough that it lasts for three days. Uh, so it's really important about, you know, I changed because Lorenzo decided that he was going to become vegan at some point uh, in the past. And I really had a hard time dealing with that uh, when I was cooking. And so I had to think about the meal in a totally different way. And I structured it to think, OK, I'm going to start with vegetables and then I'll figure out the rest so that I made sure that we had great vegetables. And then I looked at her, you know, a clean, lean protein. You can obviously have, you know, chicken or turkey. Uh, you can have fish. Uh, and then you want to explore beans, lentils, uh, that those families uh, to add to your plate and a complex carbohydrate uh, or, you know, a, a whole whole grain faro or whatnot. So it's really first you want to talk about, you know, your plate, and then you want to look at day your day in a 90-10 split. So 90%, which is health sustaining or increasing, uh, and 10% that is health depleting. Uh, so, you know, if, that, you if you must, because right. right. well, we don't like want it to be piece. deprivation. No, because it's right. not, it's, it's really about what you're bringing in. For diet, it's what you're going to introduce, which slowly means that there's not enough room for all the other stuff. So then you choose to have the thing that you really like occasionally. Like when you say 10%, is it one meal a week that might not be as good or, is you know? No, because that's on a daily basis. So you would look at your day and you'd say, I want to have, you know, if you're eating dark chocolate, you know, a couple of squares of dark chocolate, but you just want to sort of look at your day and sure. say, I'm not sure I would put dark put chocolate. Because that, that's like, the... it's like ice cream. Let's, you know, okay, have a tablespoon cream. of ice cream or, well, well, you know, yeah. Yeah, no, that's it's, what I've said. That's 10% of your calories, right? If you think about it from that perspective. I think that, you know, what happens is that if you don't really write down what you're doing each day, you don't yeah. see the kinds of foods that you're eating and not eating. So recording what you eat for three days and no judgment. This isn't about giving yourself a hard time. It's no blame, shame, and guilt. I mean, you're everybody is just wanting to take a step forward. So it is where you are right now and what small step you can to, to move forward, let's say, in diet. So by writing it down, you realize, oh, I'm eating, you know, a bagel for lunch, a sandwich with a lettuce leaf and tomato for, you know, for lunch, uh, the bagel for breakfast and dinner, you know, a plate of pasta, you realize that you haven't got any kind of nutrients that are going to sustain and fill your body and make it inhospitable to disease in general. And, and the problem with looking at it across the course of a week and not a day is that, you know, if you have a whole day of eating health-depriving, depleting foods, that's a pretty heavy hit on the body. But if you have 10% of your calories, for example, within a given 24 hours being not so healthy for you, the other 90% are going to counteract that along with your exercise, your healthy sleep, your stress management. And so the, the, the negative effects from that small amount of the forbidden fruit, so to speak, uh, will not cause as much damage in the body. And you know, people really want to complicate the whole dietary approach, primarily for, for monetary reasons, uh, with all these, you know, fancy diets and, and things that you need to order and books that you need to read and programs you have to pay for. It's essentially about eating whole foods, foods that are as refined as little as possible. So technically, any, any kind of flour 
is a refined food. Now, a whole wheat flour is less refined than a white flour. But if you eat barley, it's not refined at all. Um, and, and, and it's the whole grain that you're going to be consuming and slowly digesting. And, you know, that is, is an example, uh, that barley in particular, but also the other whole grains are critically important for maintaining the health of our microbiome that we know is now linked with all health outcomes and in particular cancer related outcomes. And everyone's heard about, you know, you want to have a healthy gut and people start thinking probiotics. And in fact, those are probably not going to be that healthy for you. There is really no pill that is going to provide systemic health for our body. And it, and it comes from eating a, a high variety and, and key is variety because you want to have a high variety in your microbiome um, as well as whole foods. And our microbiome feeds on soluble fiber foods um, and all soluble fiber foods come from the plant world. So you were mentioning earlier about fermented foods. Did you say that you shouldn't have so many fermented foods? Well, it depends what you mean by so many. So I believe that the bacteria that are in us have been and and on us and you know evolving with us have been with us for a very long time. Some of them, of course, come from fermented foods. Lactobacillus is part of, you know, and, and there's many subcategories of lactobacillus, but it comes in fermented yogurt, which is a fermented uh, dairy product. Of course, you can get kefir, both dairy as well as non-dairy. Um, the problem with fermented foods is that they have a limited number of bacterial strains. Now, the bacterial strains they have are good for you, uh, just like the bacterial strains that are in most probiotics are good bacteria. The problem is, is that there's a they're limited in number. So on the market now, the most variety I've seen in, in a probiotic supplement, and the listeners you know, may have other examples, but is, is around 15 unique bacteria, but only from five or six different primary phyla. So there could be lactobacillus, but within the lactobacillus family, they list five. And so they're saying that there's, you know, these five, but in fact, they're from that one genus, so to speak. So we, we want to have a lot of variety. And the problem with probiotics and too much probiotic foods, fermented foods, is it's going to overpopulate with a limited amount of bacteria. And although they're healthy, the key to overall health, in particular response to treatment, improved survival, is a lot of variety. And to date, the only way we know to do that is really to eat uh, high fiber foods. And some of these fermented foods also, if you were to eat them in large quantities, have been associated with stomach cancer. So you really want to keep them in small amounts. That's right. A garnish and, yeah. and you know, uh, and, and not consuming them excessively. So good to know, because I don't hear many people talking about that. And, and many people are promoting, you know, probiotics, have your prebiotics, have your fermented foods. So I appreciate you talking about that. Now, I want to just hear what your typical day looks like. Um, I know, you know, like I said, when I went through cancer, I just, everything changed. And actually food was my first thing I looked at because I felt like that's something I can control. But I'd love to hear just a typical day of yours, how you, what your health routine looks like. Do you want to go first? Sure. Well, I guess it's easier to start at the end of the day, which is making sure that bedtime ideally is consistent, but at a time that you're looking forward to your schedule, knowing that you're going to be able to get eight hours of sleep. I tend to be okay between seven and a half and eight. Allison tends to be uh, a, a little healthier in her mood if she's eight to eight and a half. Uh, and, and, and so that, that window will vary, but, you know, making sure you start there I actually said to Allison this morning, I, I woke up and didn't do what I normally do. And I started looking at email right away. And I just, it just spun me 
off. So I, I typically will not look at, at my phone or email, you know, news, anything for a minimum of half an hour. And first thing I do after uh, bathroom related things is turn on the hot water to start making our green tea. I'm the, the green tea master in our house and, and create a delicious cup every morning. And it's not just dropping a tea bag in, it's, you know, the whole process. And I view that as the start of, in some sense, a mindful exercise, knowing making this tea, the tea is very high in antioxidants and I know the health benefits of it. And I kind of focus on that while I'm, you know, putting the scoop in and then putting the matcha through the filter, watching the powder go onto the tea. You're probably hearing more than you want. I love it. It's part of, of a mindfulness uh, component. So that's how I start my day. I just want to ask, is there a special matcha tea? Like, I love matcha tea. So, Well, I'm, I'm, I'm careful to try and get it sourced, uh, you know, number one, organically, because, you know, you're eating the whole leaf. <laughs> so if they're spraying the leaf with something, you are, you are eating uh, those pesticides. You know, I try and and you know bite the bullet and and use a, a ceremonial grade matcha, uh, which you know can be a little expensive. But if you look at how much you get and how much you use, and you know how much people would spend on you know a, a Starbucks coffee, it is even at the highest grade, it's still cheaper than a Starbucks. So uh, and I, I t- we tend to buy from a local place in Houston that sources from Japan and it's all organic and, and that kind of thing. Nice. <laughs> now, what about you, Allison? What What does your day look like? Well, I enjoy my tea. I have to say that it is really a moment, that first sip every morning that I absolutely love. And I take time for myself in the morning, just, a, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes where I am kind of in my own space, thinking about my own, you know, day and world. And then I get up and I like to exercise. Uh, And that's changed through COVID because I used to have an exercise buddy who I met with at the gym and we would exercise together. And that was social as well. And then that kind of changed. But I like to walk a lot. I find that walking has become one of my favorite forms of exercise. So I walk and then I come back and I get to work and I find that I'm putting in my mind body practice. You know, we have a healthy lunch together. Um, you know, vegetables steamed, like today we had steamed zucchini, uh, you know, green beans with a salsa verde, which is garlic, uh, you know, olive parsley. oil and parsley together, uh, which is delicious. And it makes every vegetable taste fantastic. Uh, you know, some beans. So very simple working. And then uh, I like to walk as well uh, in the afternoon. Um, and we often do walking meetings. That's what's great now. You know, you can have a full meeting and walk as you go. Uh, you know, you can have a small pad of paper to take notes if you need to. Um, and the mind-body practice, I find that it is most effective for me towards the end of the day when kind of everything's accumulating. So even sitting down before dinner and taking 10 minutes to do a med- you know a guided meditation is great because I let go of everything from the day and then it sets me up for the evening. So the other the other thing is we've both started to do, and again, driven by the evidence, but also by our own uh, personal experience of, of feeling better, uh, we tend to eat two meals a day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's yeah. going to be a little bit harder for younger people who are much more active and, you know, need to consume more calories. But the evidence is 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 pretty clear, and I heard this when I had the honor of introducing for the Society of Integrative Oncology a Nobel Prize winner who won his Nobel Prize for the multiple clocks, the circadian systems in our body. And it's not just a circadian rhythm that we have. There are multiple biological processes uh, that are under control of different clocks, as, as they call them within our body. And he and other Nobel laureates are convinced that the data is so strong now uh, on restricted eating that everyone should really be doing this. And if you, you know, I, I really don't think we should live like our Paleolithic ancestors, 
uh, but they lived much healthier lives. And, and the current few hunter-gatherers that remain on the planet um, have the healthiest microbiome, have the lowest incidence of cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's, arthritis, diabetes. I mean, diabetes is non-existent, let alone uh, a heart disease in these hunter-gatherer populations. Um, and they're not snacking all day. Um, <laughs> they are hunting yeah. and foraging for most of the day. Um, and so they don't eat less calories, actually, than we do. Uh, they certainly exercise more than the average American, but they eat during restricted time. So what does that what does that mean? The minimum and, and perhaps more of a of a 12 hour fast between your last meal and your next meal. So if we eat dinner at eight, uh, we don't eat again until noon the next day. And, you know, yeah, I'm actually, I'm, I'm never hungry until 12 or one, if I've had a, a meal at, at six to, to eight o'clock at night. Now I spoke with somebody the other day who, who shifts it the other way. They, they have a, a, a very physical job. So they have a big meal at eight in the morning and then maybe something at, at around noon and then they have dinner at around four and that's it. Then they don't eat again. So it's, it's giving and, and the evidence is also showing that this is healthy for the microbiome, constantly putting food in your stomach, making those microbes work is not healthy for them. They need a break. Um, and so it's, it's that extended fast. And of course the word breakfast means breaking your fast. Well, if, if you had your last snack at midnight and then you're eating breakfast at 6 a.m., that's not much of a fast. Uh, so the, the key is to start to extend this. Right. And it's really not that hard. I think people get so worried about it. Oh, my God, I'm going to be starving. But once you do it, I think your body gets used to it. That's right. And it's not about restricting calories in any ways. It's just shifting when you consume those calories. And extending that time. Yeah. So before we get into random round, I just would love to hear from both of you. What is your best advice for someone going through the cancer process? I think that starting to know that you are loved and supported and that people and in your community, wherever that may be, are going to rally around you and that you should open your arms and take all the help that you can get because it, it feels good to give it as well as to receive it. So really uh, opening your arms to help, you know, trying to find somebody if you don't have uh, a partner who's in it with you, uh, seeing whether or not you have a friend who can be your go-to person for that emotional support. You know, we need support in many different ways and they're not all the same person. Right. So emotional support is one person, but informational support is another. So just having a broad group of people who will uh, will help you in the heal, the treatment and the healing process. Wonderful. I would add to that is that there's so much that you can do to improve your quality of life, your physical health and your outcomes. So much as a cancer patient is taken out of your control. And unfortunately, so many oncologists, uh, the message they send is, you know, don't worry, eat anything you want, you know, mm -hmm. relax, don't stress out. You know, if you're not exercising, that's okay, because, you know, this is going to be hard. And, and that's not good advice. Yes, they need to take care of you and you need to follow the, the prescription that you're getting from hospitals, but there's so much that's within your control and the evidence is overwhelming that it's going to improve your outcomes. And as Allison said, if one day it doesn't go as well for you with the mix of six, that's okay. And, you know, the next morning you can start again and, and just try and and know that each step that you do, each component of the mix of six that you add on uh, is, is going to help you not only live longer, but also feel better. And that's ultimately what's sustaining. One of the people who we talk about in our book, his husband, you know, got the book, read the book when his wife was diagnosed, and then 
you know, he sort of said, we're going to, we're going to change things up. So you have this person who helps you, you know, to change and, and to think about lifestyle in while you're thinking about your treatment. So it's really a partnership, but there is so much that you can do. Mm, very empowering. Thank you. And so are you ready for random round? I think so. <laughs> Fill in the blank. Freedom to you is time for self-care. The last show you binged and loved. Ted Lasso. When you're feeling afraid, what do you do? I make a list. If you could have a one-hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? There are so many people that it could be, but I'm finding that anybody on the street that you talk to or somebody who you just come into contact with is super interesting and has a great story. What is your favorite go-to snack? Uh, apples and almond butter. Oh, come on. With a little bit of chai. <laughs> a little bit of chai, a little bit of chai sweetener in there. <laughs> what is one simple thing that brings you joy? That green tea in the morning. What's on your nightstand? My Kindle. And I've just uh, downloaded the marriage portrait. So I'm looking forward to starting that. I did hear your favorite form of exercise during the interview. So what is your favorite form of exercise, Dr. Cohn? Well, I've just started uh, picking up running. I, I don't think running is very healthy, but it's, it is something that you can do anywhere, anytime. But my go-to would be biking outside in the hills. What's one thing that you're really grateful for in your life right now? Being present in daily life. I'm grateful for that. You should be jumping in here or you're going to have your own turn. Uh-oh. <laughs> and how can people find you and learn more? You can go to anticancer-living.com for our website. And Lorenzo's on Twitter. Instagram. Instagram. Facebook. Yeah, Facebook. All the usual suspects. Perfect. And of course, a book, a book being a great resource to, to yeah. go further than, of course, we were able to get into today. This was so fabulous. It's going to help so many people. So thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for doing the show. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.